Welcome to Open Banking Expo Unplugged, bringing you the brightest minds in open banking, open finance and beyond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Open Banking Expo's podcast series called Unplugged. I'm Ellie Duncan, Head of Content at Open Banking Expo and your host for today. And I'm joined by Stefan Wollert, one of the co-founders of Vault. And Stefan has just been promoted to Chief Operating Officer at the company, more on which a little bit later. But he's mainly joining me today to discuss sort of open banking fraud and fraud prevention. It's obviously a really hot topic in the industry at the moment and a huge cause uh, for concern for consumers and, and SMEs alike, of course. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Stefan. Great to have you on. Thank you very much, Ellie. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Not at all. And um, well, look, let's start by talking about Vault and your very recent promotion to Chief Operating Officer. Uh, can you just set the scene, telling anyone who, who's listening and who doesn't already know what Vault is? Can you tell us what, what, what do you do? All right. Yeah, happy to do so. Uh, yeah, Vault has gone through a bit of a transformation. Initially, when we launched Vault about two and a half years ago, we really set out as a open banking PIS uh, PSP, um, so focus on payment initiation services. And our hypothesis was that there are kind of three generations of open, open banking players in Europe. So the first generation just ventures helping banks to build PSD2 compliant APIs. Then a second wave of ventures started building this aggregation network. And we ourselves consider us to be part of the third generation of open banking and uh, PSD2 players who really focus on productizing whatever the aggregators make available on their APIs. Um, so complementing their functionality, but also making it usable and useful for merchants and PSPs and other financial uh, players in the market. That's where we started. Maybe just to add, so this was the, how we initially started. Since then, we have evolved a little bit. Um, we've grown a little bit hungrier. So we now have uh, a bit evolved into a global account to account player. So where we also further differentiate us from the pack here in, in, in Europe. So you may have read that we just launched PIX, which is another instant account to account transfer scheme. So we move beyond what uh, open banking is understood as here in Europe to also include other instant banking schemes around the world with the vision to eventually interconnect them and to facilitate real-time account-to-account transfers across the world. Thanks so much for, for that. And, and let's move on now to your new role at Vault, uh, Chief Operating Officer. Can you tell us a bit about um, what that role involves and, uh, and why you've been promoted, why, you, why you've created that role? Yeah, so from the beginning, I was in charge of building the tech and uh, part of the product team, which is based here in Poland around myself. So we have two major hubs in Warsaw and in uh, Krakow. The team, meanwhile, has grown to 60, maybe even 70 people. I actually don't know the exact count since we've hired so many people. Um, and uh, yeah, it was great fun for me to to contribute to the initial kickstarting of the platform. But yeah, I think there's also a certain a preference of myself and also something where my knowledge is exhausted since I have myself not developed such expert systems hands-on for a long time. So it was really time for someone to take over who knows a lot more about technology trends and some of the cutting-edge software we're factoring into our platform. So Daniel Oshansky is taking over um, yeah, as SVP technology 
And yeah, he's doing a fantastic job there. While also for us as the business, the, the next growth challenge really is operation, scale, international compliance. And that's very close to my heart. I very much enjoy uh, yeah, these challenges, which are sometimes a little bit more chaotic and need someone uh, with a clear vision of where to take this. So I'm very much looking forward to that challenge. Yeah, it sounds exciting. And um, it's great to hear about about the kind of growth trajectory of, of Volks. We'll obviously keep a close eye on that at Open Banking Expo. Um, but let's move on to talk about fraud then. I know it's something that um, uh, is, is, is a really big issue in the, in the open banking sort of ecosystem at the moment. And I guess for some, some consumers might have kind of perceived um, open banking as, as being kind of the answer to, to fraud, being a kind of way of preventing fraud in itself, given sort of strong customer authentication or SCA. So can you explain a little bit, perhaps you can set the scene about the kind of fraud cases you've seen and, and any patterns uh, that you've noticed there as well? Yeah, so if you think back six to 12 months, then people still smiled at me when I told them about the anticipated fraud scenarios in open banking because they thought literally that we are crazy um, because SCA, so strong customer authentication and real-time clearing should in theory eliminate fraud. Right? So the reality, I think everybody has learned meanwhile, looks quite different. Also with uh, fraud cases, even on the faster payment scheme, it is fairly secure and mature. Um, and also in context of the transaction risk analysis, the RTA targets that are set out in uh, PSD2, which uh, are based on amount and the permitted fraud or fraud thresholds that banks should aim for. So we have seen quite a lot of fraud attacks and those have different types of reasons. Um, the main reason I think is that the, uh, there's a very inhomogeneous implementation of PSD2 across countries and across banks. Initially, PSD2 was like a, a payments network without operational rules or precise guidances how to implement it. And that has resulted in yeah, technical solutions on many bank sites, which are just subpar and, and also not even on par with uh, yeah, what the current uh, experience on Visa MasterCard network payments would be. Uh, so you have, for instance, very different definitions of when a bank approves or authorizes a payment and what it actually means. For some banks, it just means yeah, technically the request was okay. For, while for other banks, it means yeah the payment amount is reserved. And for yet other banks, it means that the payment was already cleared. So there are huge differences and those have implications down the value chain. So if you think about this from a merchant perspective, uh, yeah, when can I send my goods? When can I credit the, the consumer? Um, PSD2 has no payments guarantees, so it's basically says that there should be reasonable comfort for the merchant to release the goods. And I think we're still quite far away from reasonable comfort in many areas. So other attacks that we've seen is uh, uh, the SCA or the second factor authentication mechanism of banks themselves are sometimes flawed. We have seen quite some strong attacks on that, which usually you can really see in the payment behavior of those shoppers when they were like, you and I, just regular guys, buying something online, and suddenly they see, oh, there is a flaw in the strong customer authentication of the bank, and you see them going completely crazy and making high-velocity attacks. Um, so that these are things we focus on. 
Another issue that we discovered, or I mean, not discovered, but it's still a reality across uh, many banks, especially Germany, France, Austria, um, is the fact that some of them still clear in overnight batches, so they don't have real-time clearing. So, but they still um, have, yeah, kind of have their overnight or clearing every three, six, twelve hours, no clearing on the weekend. And sometimes some banks still have um, issues in reserving the funds, which means I, as a user, can authorize an open banking payment and then go to the ATM, pull out all the cash. And by the time of the clearing, there will be no money in the bank account. So these are other issues. Um, other things we have observed is um, that sometimes banks approve payments. Um, so they authorize the payment. They even reply with the ISO codes indicating that the payment was cleared. And then a few hours later, we get a rejection. So that could indicate that a receiving bank uh, refused the payment. It could be due to AML. Um, but the, the problem really is this intransparency. So there is no mandate on the banks to tell us why a payment was declined, which makes it even more difficult to interpret and read all those cases. So the real challenge is to distinguish the technical challenge or technical issues in the banks or across the value chain from fraud issues, no? so real fraudsters. And that is the mission that we're uh, on and the problem that we're trying to solve with uh, yeah, our product. That's really interesting. I mean, there's some, um, as you say, quite a few issues to unpick there, I guess, before you can kind of solve uh, some of those those problems. But I mean, um, you talked a lot there about about the banks. Uh, what are they doing about this, if if anything? What's what's been um, their response, I suppose, to these these rising instances of fraud? Yeah. So what we see is uh, that the the rules on the bank side are tightening. So um, they are aware of fraud issues and they try to protect their APIs. Uh, so sometimes they require additional data fields from us. So we need to localize the payment flow like you do in the cards world. Um, so it's a very similar similar concept. But mainly they apply their existing risk systems, which very often were designed for cards fraud, which is quite a lot more dynamic and also a little bit different here and there, um, to the open banking world. And that doesn't always work because in the open banking, uh, quite often there's a lack of data available to the banks to make good decisions. So that basically leads to the simple conclusion that if you cannot mitigate the risk, you just eliminate the risk, which means you switch off the merchant. Uh, we have seen instances of this. And that is, of course, something we want to prevent, right? And the best way to do this is to have fraud checks before you send payments to the bank so that you already pre-filter. Um, another thing or another question that we also have is if bank systems are actually set up for the real-time world. So they already struggle with real-time clearing in many cases to migrate to uh, Zipa Instant Clearing with TIPS or RT1. Um, but also they still have a compliance obligation to run uh, sanction checks or whatever internal uh, risk checks they need to comply with the local regulatory framework. And getting this towards real time is a serious challenge for many banks as well. Okay, so um, I guess some of the the kind of solutions you mentioned there seem quite short term, and, and as you say, um, perhaps th there's a better way of, of for banks to deal with this. But do banks and third party providers have? I mean, you mentioned that that kind of data issue, I suppose, uh, and the fact that obviously. Um, you require more data in order to make 
good fraud prevention decisions right so so what 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 needs to happen there for banks and tpps to get sufficient data yeah so that's a good point um so uh, 3d secure 2.0 just as uh, the sca framework um, on psc2 can only really work if the banks and the TPPs have enough data and if the data is being shared uh, vertically and horizontally with all the participants in the payment network. So Visa causes the network of trust, right? So data sharing and making sure everyone is doing the job. And in open banking, this is still kind of missing. Um, And often it is missing because there is no specification or standardization who needs to share which payment data with whom. So uh, IP addresses, device fingerprints, um, shopper email addresses, unique shopper IDs, or whatever data points you can think of for for retail, for instance, address data. Um, None of these data points is really shared across uh, the payments value chain, which means that neither TPPs nor banks have enough data to make educated decisions with proper fraud engines or anti-fraud engines. Um, so that is was something that we are starting to address with our own circuit breaker for prevention tool that we ingest more data from the merchant to filter better before we send users or, or shoppers, payers, account holders to the bank to authenticate their payment. Um, yeah, but it requires a bit of a industry standardization and a process across the industry. And the other thing that we very much miss, which is probably one of the most difficult uh, challenges in the industry is that the bank has no obligation to tell us why they decline a payment. So in the Visa MasterCard world, you have a very uh, narrow and clearly specified set of return reason codes why a payment might be declined. So it could be that the account is blocked. It could be that there's not insufficient funds or any of these type of reasons. VS TPP or open banking payments provider, we literally get no feedback from the banks, which means even if there's a fraudster, we wouldn't know because nobody tells us about it. Um, and that eliminates for us the possibility to deploy machine learning algorithms or any type of smart solution to block fraud and become more efficient and effective um, in the mitigation of risks. Yeah, so that is an action item which I at least saw on the uh, agenda of OBIE and probably other regulatory bodies already, but the implementation will still take a very long time. And up until then, it's up on us, the TPPs, to uh, mitigate these type of fraud risks. Yeah, well, let's hope there's some movement on that soon then. And and you mentioned there actually kind of this idea of, yeah, an industry standard, I suppose. Is is that something that, um, well, I mean, what what do you think that, that could look like? Yeah, so the simple solution is, of course, to just copy paste what already exists in the cards world to the um, open banking world. I think there are many people who would have very smart ideas how we could improve this and make it more precise and more future-proof, but also globally scalable. Um, So, yeah, that would be a very much appreciated approach to just start with something that we already have and can uh, enable as a quick win, but then also to evolve this into something that is governed in the open banking framework with the uh, regulators in Europe, and that is owned by someone who really understands open banking and tailors the needs of such uh, data sharing requirements to what really moves the needle and what moves us as industry, but also us as I would say, yeah, leader in payments, uh, which I consider Europe to be payments innovation uh, forward. Yeah, uh, that's that's really interesting. And um, 
but let's talk now about, I guess, the impact on on merchants because, you know, you've kind of set the scene there for for um, what's what's going on and, and why and and the fact that there's all this data that's kind of lacking. Um, but actually, what does all of that mean for the merchants? Yeah, so for for merchants, the impact is uh, quite averse and. If you try to, to unpack it, then you could say it really boils down to a lot of operational overhead. You know? um, due to the fact there is no payments guarantee in open banking, merchants need to deal with the risk of non-settlement. Uh, so the payment was authorized by the bank, but the money doesn't arrive. Then many merchants, surprisingly many merchants, still have manual reconciliation processes um, where they then many log into their own receiving bank account, reconcile payment by payment at the end of the month. So the benefit of like open banking is diminished because the process is not reliable. Um, and the U.S. merchants still need to have a manual process. It cannot be automated um, or only at great costs. And at the other end, you have this direct risk of yeah, users demand real time. You know, if you are playing uh, Xbox or so and want to go buy a new game or a new car for Forza Motorsport, you want it now and not after three days once the merchant reconciled. So it's not only the merchants, but also the merchant, the value that the merchant provides to the consumer that is entirely diminished if you cannot get open banking to work in real time with a payments guarantee or automated processes, reliably automated processes. So then following on from that, what, what can merchants do about this? Um, uh, uh, maybe they're already taking action, but, but yeah, what's the solution for merchants? Yeah, so uh, there are two, two problems that need to be addressed, right? So the one is the actual money management and the second one is the mitigation of risks. Um, for this, we as Vault provide two tools. The one is uh, Vault Connect, which enables merchants to open bank accounts with uh, third parties um, that we work with we get read access to these bank accounts, which means we don't only see the payment initiation on the shopper side, we, all, we also see the bank account of the merchant and the receiving funds. So that is super important because it allows us to have full cycle insight um, and it allows us to send the merchant an instant notification once the uh, funds have arrived in his bank account so that he can trigger his business processes um, and yeah, send the goods or release the crypto or whatever. Um, so that is super important and super valuable. Um, our goal there as well is to press this process into a 120 seconds time window. So from the user clicking, I want to pay to money in the bank and products released 120 seconds. That's our goal across whole Europe and later other regions. Um, but it only solves a partial problem because there is still a risk of non-settlement and there are non-settlements occurring. And those can have two reasons, right? It's either of technical nature or it's real fraud. Um, technical issues we can more or less investigate, but fraud sometimes is hard to distinguish. So the risk is basically probability times impact. And we try to focus on both the probability, but also the impact of fraud attacks. For this, we have built and released Circuit Breaker, open banking's first anti-fraud tool. Um, and with this, you can implement rules like velocity checks or amount uh, caps. And that is really what we're trying to, to roll out across the entire merchant base. So far, the adoption has been fantastic and uh, merchants really love it um, Yeah, because it just creates this peace of mind that if there's an issue with a bank or anywhere, 
uh, they were able to yeah, either stop or mitigate the impact of this attack. Yeah, great to hear that you've already had quite a bit of feedback then from merchants. Um, do you think maybe the, or would you like to see rather, the industry move a bit faster um, to come up with, with these solutions, these fraud prevention solutions? Or, or do you think the industry is, is it always going to be kind of playing catch up to the fraudsters in a way? I think the fraud scenarios in open banking are relatively limited. So um, that is one of the advantages compared to cards. So cards have many more attack surfaces, you can say, compared to open banking or bank transfers in general. Um, the main problem is that if there is a, a weakness in any system, right, fraudsters will exploit it yeah, to the maximum with a higher velocity attack. Um, yeah, it's, it really boils down to making sure that the banks have a proper SCA process in place um, and, uh, yeah, that we start sharing data across the network so everybody understands what is actually going on, why are payments declined, um, and then to work from there. Yeah, okay. Well, hopefully we'll we'll see more work um, on that in, in 2022. And, Stefan, thank you so much for joining me today and for talking about this hugely important issue. Um, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Stefan from Vault there for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks to you also, as always, for listening. For more episodes of Open Banking Expo Unplugged, then just go to the on-demand section of openbankingexpo.com. You'll find uh, all the recent episodes as well as uh, Open Banking Expo TV episodes. And you can watch back some of our recent panel sessions from our events as well. For now, goodbye. <laughs>